Shalom and welcome to Jewish Boston's The Vibe of the Tribe podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Anzeman, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dan Seligson, and a special guest co-host, Ashley Jacobs. Hi, Miriam. This is our Halloween episode today, and of course, this is not a Jewish holiday at all, but this is the perfect time to recognize all of the terrifying and frankly believable superstitions that Judaism has brought into the world. So in the spirit of this amazing holiday, we're going to be talking about Jewish supernatural and occult beliefs throughout history and pop culture. So this is a podcast episode I've wanted to do since before I even worked at Jewish Boston. I first became interested in this topic when I was a kid when I read several books from my mom's really quite astounding Jewish library. In particular, I was enthralled with Jewish Magic and Superstition, a study in folk religion by Joshua Trachtenberg. That's how I first learned about the Hebrew and Aramaic origins of the famous magical incantation Abracadabra, for example, and that Jewish culture absolutely has room for demons, angels, divination, and incantations of all kinds. The Jewish people have been around for thousands of years, so it shouldn't be shocking that Jews, like other people around the world, developed mystical, supernatural, and occult practices. Of course, throughout history, superstition against Jews was rampant in Europe and elsewhere, and there was a very strong medieval belief that the Jews and their secret Kabbalistic practices were actively working with Satan to harm people who weren't Jewish. In parts of the Middle East, this belief is still firmly held. So I was a bit confused in elementary school when my friends refused to let me play with them uh, with a Ouija board because, apparently, as a Jew, Satan wouldn't speak to me. I admit uh, that was a bummer. Oh my god. So we are very, very excited today to be joined by an expert in this field. Peter Biebergall is the author of Season of the Witch, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll, Too Much to Dream, A Psychedelic American Boyhood, The Faith Between Us, A Jew and a Catholic Search for the Meaning of God, and now his new book, Strange Frequencies, The Extraordinary Story of the Technological Quest for the Supernatural. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Peter, thank you so much. We hope you've brought some amulets on this podcast just in case some demons don't like us talking about them. And they might. It's Although it is the saying the demon's name that gives you the power over it. So. Did we say it yet? Not yet. We'll, we'll, no. we'll, we'll, <laughs> I, okay. okay, well, I'm really interested uh, how you first became interested in the subject of the supernatural and the occult. So it's definitely part of my childhood story of always being interested in monster movies and short stories. I was reading, of course, Ray Bradbury stories as a kid, and there were always those – I don't know if you're – in the 70s in particular, there were a lot of um, collections of – monster and ghost stories that you could get through the scholastic catalog that would come along with dynamite magazine that sort of thing but but it seemed that particularly in the 70s it was an increased interest in the pop culture in monsters i watched creature double feature in the morning and i was particularly enamored with whenever there would be an amusement park ride that would have the haunted house of some kind and so I, I just was fascinated with all of that, particularly Frankenstein and Dracula from the original Universal horror films. And my parents were particularly, I guess, kind about it. They would, My dad would always buy me horror comic books. Even as a young kid, six, seven years old, I remember reading these magazines called Creepy and Eerie, which were quite lurid at the time, you can imagine, and buy me the monster models that you could get. And so that was always something that I was interested in. And I 
I learned early on that monsters are often very much related to concepts of the supernatural, of course. And what's interesting, though, is I became a player of Dungeons and Dragons when I was 12, 13 years old. And then, of course, I was curious about where the ideas of magic came from that I that were incorporated into this game. And I stumbled upon a book in Salem, I think, at one of the witch or occult bookstores. This is probably in the very early 80s. And there was a book called The Key of Solomon the King. And it was a medieval grimoire for how to conjure and bind demons to sort of do your, your holy bidding, as it were. But what struck me about this book was that it was filled with Hebrew letters, with prayers that seemed to suggest a Jewish origin. And it was not long before that that I was bar mitzvahed, and we lived in Miami, Florida at the time, and my parents had already done the larger, big reform bar mitzvah with my brother in Framingham. And so when we were in Florida, they wanted to make it easy. They didn't want to join a synagogue. But the only people that would bar mitzvah me without my parents' call being a member was the Chabad house. So my very secular, modern, reformed Jewish parents decided to have me bar mitzvahed by Hasidim uh, in Miami, Florida. That's wow. amazing. Yeah. And so that in itself was sort of a very strange and magical experience for me. I struggled with it. I mean, there was a lot of what they presented to me that didn't make sense, but there was this sort of mystery inherent in it that captured my imagination. And when I discovered something like this very strange book, The Key of Solomon, it this idea that Jews practiced magic was something that was just astonishing to me and has been an interest of mine um, in in terms of my my overall interest in sort of these fringe and non-traditional uh, religious ideas, the Jewish element of this has stood out for me as something that's been really fascinating. So we were uh, lucky enough to get to read the first chapter of your forthcoming book, Strange Frequencies, and it's called The Golem. Am I I'm saying that correctly? Golem? Not, the golem go not Golem. Not Golem from golem. Lord of the Rings. Not Golem from Lord of the Rings. The Golem... Whoa, you did I just it good. did it. <laughs> Golem of Boston. And in that chapter, you're detailing your mission to find out how to actually create this supernatural being. Uh, for listeners who may not be familiar with the term, can you tell us a little bit about a golem and uh, what were you looking to do with it? Any particular tasks you wanted it to accomplish? Sure. I mean, there's certainly some laundry that hasn't <laughs> been getting done that could be getting done. But essentially, the idea of the golem is that through some both material process and some divine formula, the rabbi can create a semblance of life through this sort of creature made of mud. And the what's interesting about the golem story is that there's a number of different ways in which it plays out. The most popular is, of course, called the golem of Prague, yeah. which essentially, and it's told in some very different ways. Even the Brothers Grimm have a version of it. But essentially the story is that in Prague, there are pogroms. The Jews are begging their the rabbi to help them. He builds a golem, sets it unleashed on the Gentiles that are uh, 
that are harassing the Jewish people. And it goes too far, though. It becomes a killing machine, which was not its his original or the people's intention. He tries to stop it. There's a couple of uh, there's a couple of versions of it. One is he it grows so tall that he has to climb a ladder. He erases the secret word on its forehead and it crumbles and kills the rabbi. Another is that he's able to erase the name and on its forehead and it goes into sort of a, a coma like state and the the sort of idea is that to this day the golem still sleeps in the attic of the of the temple in Prague. So there's this idea that the golem if when we're ready to activate it again and we can use it wisely, it will be there for us. Just like King Arthur, but with more mud. It, much, yeah. much more mud, exactly. <laughs> but on the other side of that, you have a little bit more uh, Kabbalistic and magical meditations on the idea of the golem. In particular, there is thoughts within some rabbinical commentary on a book called the Sefer Yitzra, which is considered to really to be one of the earliest Kabbalistic texts, which describes the creation of the world through letters, through the permutations of, the, of, of names and letters, that through using the same kinds of techniques that, that God used to create the world, that the mystic can actually create this creature. What's interesting about that, though, is that most of the commentaries describe this not as a process whereby you would create this creature to go and do some kind of tasks for you, but rather to almost create an ecstatic state of being so that you are now, in some ways, imitating these divine processes and becoming closer to God. And there's even some tales, some some commentary that suggests that creating a golem is really the, the first exam of your mystical and magical career. And that once you create a golem, the angel Raziel will come and bring you much more complex and interesting magical lessons. That's odd because it seems to me like that would be the seminar level. That's what I thought originally (laughs) when I first started researching this. But it turns out that that even the the mention of of the golem, the, the single mention of the golem in the Talmud is unimpressive to the rabbis of the Talmud. Mm. They say, well, can it speak? What can it do? And when they find that it really can't do anything, it's just, um, it's a trick. It's sort of like a magic trick as opposed to some deeper mystical uh, or magical uh, um, way of connecting with the Godhead, as it were. I totally feel the same way about my Google Home Assistant. I would expect so much more. Exactly. The dumb dumb machine. Exactly. And so that's what's very interesting, though, about what you just say there is because, interestingly, the golem has persisted even outside of Jewish communities as a metaphor for our attempt to endow a machine with some kind of life with some kind of sentience or artificial intelligence. I think, you know, we, and and what's interesting is that often gets combined with the idea of the Frankenstein thing. But the Frankenstein thing is not not as much, I don't think, about 
the creation of 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 mind because Frankenstein is just taking what already was there, a brain that already existed, putting it together and trying to make it the come up again. The the golem is much more representative of what what Jews have long believed God has done with us, taken the mud from the earth and formed it into a person and imbued it with life. What's fascinating, and I think one of the most interesting distinctions between something like the golem and God's creation in Genesis and the distinction that these rabbis make that that the golem cannot speak is that Adam's first task is to name the animals, to name creation. And that's it's all about language. And so the, the fact that the golem is without language is also representative of that we, that as much as we can try to connect with the way in which God created through trying to imitate and use those same formula, that there will always be this place in which we, we are not the same. In fact, if I can go on a little bit more about this, there is this idea that the single human being or rabbi in this case cannot create a golem by themselves there must be another rabbi or mystic with them because only god can create as one mm. and the human being requ- cannot ever create as a, as one and must have a group and so there's even thoughts in some of these mystical texts that the that the that the golem is only created by a group effort because that's, so, that's, that's the so only interesting way we can... because you know we're we're taught that you know you're not supposed to separate yourself from the community uh, as Jews it's something that you're not supposed to do um, even when you're making or maybe especially when you're engaging in kind of some kind of magical practice you have to still be part of the community you can't go it alone that's right that's exactly. so interesting. Um, so you just you actually just touched upon the way like you you encountered uh, the golem in Dungeons and Dragons, for example. So let's talk about how the Jewish occult has impacted, you know, pop culture and ideas of Western magic. So we've got numerous examples, the golem, uh, Lilith, the the baby killing demoness, first wife of Adam, uh, the Dibuk, and more of these figures that have entered what you know Tolkien would have called the uh, the cauldron of story, um, the melting pot of archetypes that authors and creators now pull from. So I wanted to ask, and this is for everybody, but for you, Peter, first, what are some of your favorite or least favorite examples of the Jewish occult in pop culture? So my f- my favorite example of this is actually from the Coen Brothers film A Serious Man. I don't know if anybody here has seen no. that, but at the beginning, have no, you seen that? Ashley's the expert on no, Coen Brothers. My favorite. Films. No, I haven't movie yet. Of theirs. Yeah. But in the the beginning of the film opens with a story taking place in a shtetl, where they're visited by what the. Um, lady of the of the home believes is a dibuk and that i don't want to give it away because since you haven't seen it but their response to that seems to be to, seems to lend itself to some influence through the rest of the film as maybe this family is related to this shtetl family or something it's a very very strange moment because it never comes back huh. in the film in a literal way but it's it's a wonderful scene about a potential Dibbuk 
coming to call at this family's shtetl home. All right, we gotta we gotta see that. Um, okay, Dan. So how about I'll, you? I'll give you my my favorite, yeah. my least favorite. Uh, my very favorite was an X Files episode from 1997 entitled Kaddish, Kaddish, Kaddish. And in this episode, uh, there's anti-Semitism, murder, revenge, and an unanswered mystery about a golem, which I will not say anything more about because if you can get your hands on it, uh, <laughs> it's really one of the best X-Files episodes ever. This is one of my favorite shows, and they were really at their peak in 97. Mm-hmm. On the other side was a wretched movie uh, that came out in 2012 called The Possession. I don't know if anyone has no. seen this movie. It's we a, haven't been subjected to it's it. It's a punishment. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it features... Uh, and this is part of the problem, uh, a former ultra-Orthodox reggae singer, Mattis Yahoo. And uh, <laughs> what happens in this film is there's a young girl. Uh, her parents have just gotten divorced. She's very sad and going through a very difficult time. She finds a box. The box is magical. She's possessed by a dibuk. And uh, the rest of the movie is the, sort of a, um, a cheap uh, version of The Exorcist from mm-hmm. a Jewish perspective, but regrettably... Uh, doesn't really, I guess, break any new ground in the demon possession movie <laughs> genre. So don't recommend it. I'm going to have to watch it just for the modest Yahoo appearance. Seriously, Absolutely. right? Oh my That's right? incredible. Well, let me just quickly ask you, wasn't there an X-Files episode about a Nephilim also, or is that the same one? What's a Nephilim? Uh, go ahead. No, no go no, ahead. No, no, after you. The Nephilim was the single mention in Genesis where it says that the Nephilim arrive and marry the daughters of men and give birth to giants. That's right. What? This is pre-flood. Yes. It's yeah. antediluvian myth. That's right. Of these angelic creatures called Nephilim that mate with human women right. and give birth to giants. And it, it has a, one of my favorite lines. It's one of these toss-away Bible lines of which there are dozens and it renders usually, and there were giants in those days. Yeah, and then nothing more is episode, ever said about <laughs> it. You would think that yeah. would be something that the rabbis would have right. never stopped talking right. about, right. and yet never hear about it again. I, I could it totally really picture Mulder bit. leaning back in his chair and throwing a pencil up into the ceiling, <laughs> and Scully saying, Come on, Mulder. And, you know, uh, but I'm sure I'm, I, I'll go back and check and maybe yes. watch that one too. Yeah, the idea of the Nephilim, I think, actually makes its way th- into a couple of other pop. I think there's Nephilim in that film, Constantine, maybe. Oh, they're literally everywhere. Yeah. Um, there's in the Madeline, Madeline uh, uh, what's her last name? Lengel? Lengel? Yes, yes. yes. Um, she In one of her series, the Wrinkle in Time series, there's one where uh, two members of the main family go back in time to the time of the flood, and uh, the Nephilim are there. Um, and and that's part of it too. So it's there's there's been several I think pop yes. culture usage. Actually, in Dan, uh, Darren Aronofsky's Noah movie, yeah, there are Nephilim. He has Nephilim in there. Are they portrayed as giants? Because I know they like, are portrayed as these weird giants. Okay, because I know in like Midrash, there's some. So Midrash is kind of like the fan fiction, I would say, of um, Jewish texts. Yes. <laughs> so there's a lot of theories about like what they look like or what they, you know, yes. represent. So I was interested to know because I haven't seen that one yet yes, either. <laughs> um, okay, Ashley, um, I wanted to ask you your favorite slash least favorite uh, representation. Well, I don't really have a least favorite because okay I think too. I'm like the least learned of everyone here about Jewish magic and occult stuff. 
But in learning about a golem for this podcast, I remembered an episode of one of my favorite 90s TV shows, Sabrina the Teenage mm, Witch. Coming back soon. Yes, that's right. That's right. Can't wait. <laughs> so excited. Um, in which Sabrina, uh, the guy that she likes or was dating or something, is going to the school dance with this girl Sabrina hates. So her aunts create a date for her made out of dough. And brilliant. Yeah, like a dough date. The episode's actually called Dream Date, and this guy's just supposed to do whatever Sabrina wants him to do. Um, just like keep her company, kind of protect her from, you know, any sort of like emotional teen angst stuff. And then the aunts create their own dream dates for fun. Um, in Nightmare Before Christmas, Dr. Finkelstein creates Sally to be his little slave although she likes to revolt and can think of her own. Um, another example would be Harry Potter, the Inferi, uh, which are dead bodies enchanted by a dark wizard to do his bidding. So again, just doing things, not being able to speak, but just doing a singular action. Yeah, being compelled. Yes, these, yeah. s- these servitors, That's they're right. often Servit- called. Yeah. Yes. yeah, and then also in Harry Potter, Avada Kedavra, That's right. Aver- which yep, yep. is the killing curse. And that's very close to something we're going to be talking about later, too. Yeah, so, yeah, like it, so Avada Kedavra sounds like abracadabra, right? Which comes from an Aramaic phrase, which is translated into, I will create as has been spoken. So Avada Kedavra being the killing curse is the opposite of creation. That's right. So I just thought that was very fascinating. So my favorite... um, it's actually, I didn't think about it until you were just talking about the Coen brothers. Um, but so I don't know if anybody here watches the TV show Fargo. Um, oh, I love it. Okay, so for in the in the third so season, good. it's really great. In the third season, there's this, um, do you recall this bit where uh, there's a character who's a villain and he's descended from Cossacks. Um, and there's this bit, it's, it's so, it, it doesn't seem to have a place in the rest of the story at all, just like you were talking mm. about. But it really, I just loved it. It's when... Um, this Cossack is sort of like captured mentally by the spirits of a Jewish village that was massacred, and they're like um, followers of Rabbi Nachman of Bratislav, I think. Um, and I just love that because it was so random. So from absolutely nowhere did this pop up, but I loved that the Cossack, um, as this like archetypical uh, enemy of the Jewish people, got his comeuppance via the spirits of dead Jews. Um, yes. So, but my. The one that I uh, am most annoyed or frustrated by is actually how Lilith shows up literally everywhere. So Lilith has been, you know, framed as this feminist icon and she's shown up in like if you go to Wikipedia and search pop culture Lilith, pages and pages and pages. Um, She's shown up in True Blood, uh, so many vampire novels, the Sandman graphic novels. She's the name of Lilith's Fair. She's um, a, there's a Jewish feminist magazine called that's Lilith. Right, yes. it's getting to be a little much, in my opinion. There's other demons out there, um, so th- that annoys me. And also Tim Burton uh, ripping off the Corpse Bride folktale, which is a Jewish folktale, um, also annoys me. <laughs> I just watched it last night. I loved it. It was so yeah, beautiful. Um, it was so beautiful. Well, uh, it's a Jewish folktale. Yeah. yeah, I did not know that. Yeah, uh, where a young guy goes out and he puts the the ring on a on a finger. Well, he doesn't know what's he's putting a ring on a corpse finger. He thinks it's a stick, and like it's exactly the same uh, origin of that and story. Now you can cleanse yourself after you watch the horrific 
possession right. with Corpse Bride, which is actually <laughs> okay. a good movie. Okay, good. So, so why do you think that these occult stories and figures have captured the popular imagination in this way? Well, I think there is definitely the long, simmering, conflicting relationship that the world has with Jews, mm, you know? Yeah. And it's sort of, you know, we like what we like and we don't like what we don't like. And you sort of take what you want and leave the rest kind of thing. And I think that there's something about folk tales that seem to transcend even those kinds of uh, more immediate feelings, I guess, that, or co- conflicting feelings that people may overall have, mm-hmm. right? Because they are easily they're a way of embracing sort of this other culture with things that we also all share, ghost stories and things like that. So I think there's definitely that. I also think that, look, I mean, you know, maybe it's a little bit biased, but Jewish stories are very compelling, (laughs) you know, and there's a reason why we've been telling them over and over again for millennium. Yeah. And I think that there's something about the way in which they – can immediately play as these archetypes is very important. I think this goes to the heart of a lot of what we would call sort of occult or supernatural symbols and ideas is there's something about them even out, you know, beyond their sort of cultural, beyond their cultural specificity that seem to trigger something in our unconscious, mm. that they're, they are some of the most potent archetypes now, I, I, I do think it's dangerous to try to divorce them entirely from their original or origin sort of uh, traditions, but it is important to see that they that these ideas very readily transcend that and, and we respond to them either with fascination, often in fear, but there's something about these particular things that really get to us very easily. Mm. And that's one of the reasons why I've been so fascinated by them. Yeah, so to me, what makes these stories so fascinating is their ability to, and I'm going to steal your word, Peter, transcend our mundane reality and make us believe in something greater than ourselves and our day-to-day. And that's just what a good story does. Pop culture is overflowing with magical stories about the good witch versus the bad witch, black magic versus white magic, Angels versus demons, essentially just the dichotomy of good and evil. But is that also reflected in Jewish magic? What's considered legitimate and what's considered taboo? Yeah, it's a fa- it's a fascinating. I mean, first of all, so so there are very strict prohibitions in the law against certain forms of divination, certain right divination, fortune telling, you know, those kinds of things. But we also know that like most things, well, Judaism, like all religions, is a, is also a lived religion. And the way people live is often very different than the sh- scriptures with which they also embed their identity. And so we know that Middle Age and medieval Jews hammered out amulets and put them on their doors to protect their children from Lilith. That's right. We know that they you know, hammered out amulets for other forms of protection, that they probably used all kinds of folk remedies for 
um, for illness and things like that. And so that's also just part of sort of the lived experience of, I think, the human condition as opposed to any one religious tradition because we know that most religious traditions have some form of magical practice yeah. built into the way they're actually lived, just particularly in rural areas where people didn't have access, say, to a lot of things like medicine and yeah. relied upon these kind of folk remedies for things. So there's that. But within Judaism, I think what you have, and you see this in, in a lot of the of tensions within the actual magical practice that can be found, particularly in Kabbalistic texts, is that magic itself, I think, can be, is often divided into thinking about it in two different ways. One is sort of, and, and even today, occultists will often make this distinction between low magic and high magic. Mm. Low magic being the magic that is about you know, um, trying to win some money or find love or find treasure. There's a lot of magic um, that's about treasure seeking. Even the, the um, we know that Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, right. practiced magic. And that part of the way in which he discovers the books of Mormon is because he's treasure hunting using a divining rod mm -hmm. of some kind. And it was just a regular activity that you would go in search of treasure using magical and occult practices. And this book is, these books are discovered and then he has to actually create special lenses, these special magical scene stones to be able to read the book mm -hmm. of Mormon. So we know that Again, these are very much part. So that would be more be considered low magic. And then there's high or ceremonial magic, which is the magic by which you are really trying to interact with the divine. And you see this play out in some very strange ways in some of these uh, Jewish texts. One of the ones that's most interesting is called the Sefer HaRazim. Mm -hmm. And the Sefer HaRazim is a very, very strange little book. And it describes the rabbi slash mystic slash magician ascending each level of heaven. And when he, and I say he and I mean he, unfortunately these were, it was more often likely that it was believed that men were performing these activities. Right. It's likely women were also practicing forms of magic, but in terms of them thinking of that these were rabbis, in this situation, so excuse the, the gender in here of this, but so the the rabbi would find would enter the first level of heaven, and there would be all these angels there, and the angels would teach the rabbi a certain kind of magic, and it might be magic for literally things like winning at horse racing, okay, and then the next you ascend to the next level and you learn more complicated magic, and the book is in some ways, just a list of all the names of all these angels that inhabit each layer of this heavenly realm. And then when you get to the final level of heaven, the top level, suddenly there's no more magic, there's no more magical instruction, and the entire thing is this intense devotional prayer to God. And so you see that even in this case that 
that while the rabbi is learning magical techniques along their journey to heaven, that it really those are just it, those are just artifacts mm-hmm. of the rabbi's or the mystic's journey to the Godhead. And so what happens is in other Kabbalistic texts we see as the rabbi is trying to ascend to the Godhead, it, the angels often will block their way. And so the solution to that is for the rabbi to learn the angel's name. And once they learn the angel's name, they can banish it. But once they learn their name, they also realize that they have power over it. And then once you have power over something, you can command it to do your bidding. So this is that way in which ceremonial or this sort of divine magic lends itself also to performing these other more kind of banal operations. And that tension has always, I think, been inherent in in in, in Judaism and in Kabbalistic ideas of magic. I always thought of uh, more legitimate forms as anything that that involves using the tetragrammaton, the unpronounceable name of God, um, as the ultimate magical spell because no one can say it. Um, uh, and it's but it's um, my my favorite story involving the magical use of the name involves the Baal Shem Tov, which literally translates to master of the good name, um, the founder of the Hasidic movement. Um, there's some really amazing folk tales about him using the name to teleport. Um, yes. But also, <laughs> I love the one, he turns an anti-Semitic sorcerer into a cat and <laughs> using the tetragrammaton. Um, so you actually touched upon this before, but how else is the Hebrew language used as magical incantations or as formulas? Yes, I mean that. So the tetragrammaton is the. So with the tetragrammaton, the idea is that you can then create permutations of that. Mm-hmm. And if you keep. And, and there's a number of names of God. Right. And if you keep doing the permutations and you meditate on them or you chant them, then you can create ecstatic states. And inside those ecstatic states, there can be magical, uh, revelatory understanding of things. And so it is interesting, though, that I do think that for Judaism, well, I shouldn't say for Judaism, but at some stage of Kabbalistic ideas of magic, that the ultimate goal is union with God. Right. But that along the way, because you're having to create these various formulas using the letters, which is also, the, as the Sefer HaRazim in an earlier book called the Bahir describes how God created the world, that you are not only get, that you're learning those same kinds of techniques, but the ultimate goal is not magical power. The ultimate goal is union with the Godhead, union with Ein Sof, right? Union right. with the unknowable, ineffable name. So I know you're an Indiana Jones fan. Certainly Raiders of the Lost Ark came up in your book very early on. Um, there's one, the, obviously the big scene at the end where uh, one of the Nazis says, I'm uncomfortable with this Jewish ritual. <laughs> I love that. And, you know, <laughs> I, I, when we talk about Jewish magic and how it's permeated culture and even practice, religious practice that is not Jewish practice, including, uh, well, well, we'll get into that, but <laughs> when we talk about Kabbalah and other forms of, of Jewish magic, are, are some people unintentionally doing Jewish rituals? 
without knowing or, or, or are, practicing are Jewish, Jewish superstitions symbols. or using our symbols? Sure. I mean, mo- I mean, so especially when we get into the ideas of, so we talked about Kabbalistic magic, but the folk magic, which is sort of more those, the, 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 the more uh, localized activities like that um, Trachtenberg writes about, right? Those are not techniques necessarily for rabbis. These are just techniques for people, and they have to do with amulets and things like yeah. that. It's hard to say, though, because Judaism, its Jewish magical practice itself probably is also syncretic in its own way and probably drawing from other cultures, right? So right. when you're talking particularly about Ashkenazi Jews, we're talking about all of Eastern Europe culture participating in those practices. This right? long list of superstitions. And- exactly. Right. That's right. And there's definitely a Jewish um, sensibility to what they were doing. Um, but but I wouldn't I wouldn't I wouldn't in any way want us to think that we're talking about some pure form of something that that arose in a vacuum within Jewish life, right? It's, right. It's all of a piece. It all intersects. Right? Yeah. Um, I mean, we even probably could even read Genesis like that, right? We know that there were other flood stories. We know that, right? So, again, that's not to take away the power of these myths and how what— what Judaism did that was so unique to these things that gave them a resonance that we're still feeling today. And I think that that's, what's, that's part of what's really important here is that the Jewish stamp on it is in many ways what gave it its longevity. Mm-hmm. And so... And fed so much by anti-Semitism as well. Absolutely. I mean, anti-Semitism has played such a key role in this idea of Jews as these spiritually powerful beings. That's right. The exactly. ultimate sorcerer. That's right. And and oddly inhuman in some ways. That's right. Right? Not not meta or ultra human, but less than human. And there's this very interesting, I think there's an incredible contradiction there that you would imagine that the thing that could potentially have power over you is actually a lesser species. It seems that you right. would imagine that they were a greater species. So somehow logic, there's doesn't, a, play <laughs> logic doesn't play into <laughs> that this. That was not one of the yes. leading right. ideas. I, so I do think, though, where you see in Judy, in, in, in where people are pra- quote, practicing magic, are magical practitioners today are using much of Jewish flavor in their practice, sometimes unknowingly. And that is mostly captured by what is called the the in general magical parlance the tree of life but in kabbalistic and jewish uh, lore we understand as the sephirotic tree and so this tree of sort of attributes of the divine seems to be a really good spiritual map and it's easily applied to many other magical traditions. And so what you have is you have this Kabbalistic map called the Sefirot, and you see people co- showing corresponding things like tarot cards that correspond to it, astrological signs that correspond to each of the Sefirot. You have um, a whole tables of correspondences related to gemstones, colors, plants, each one that captures the same 
attribute as the ones in the tree of life and then can be used to perform certain magical activities. It's important to note that most of West, what we call Western magic is dependent on this idea of correspondences, which is like is to like or as above, so below. So the idea here is that there is some divine power, whether it's captured in the form of one of the planets or in it in an angelic presence of some kind, and that as you sort of go down the go down the line into the material world, each thing has a connective tissue to it. So there is a gemstone and a plant and a color. They're all related in literally in temperament to these divine forces, individual divine forces. And so if you want to, say, inhabit the speed of mercury, you would then eat or burn and inhale the fumes of a certain plant, which is a plant that is the plant that corresponds to mercury. So the and the sephirot, the sephirotic tree, is at the center of these correspondences for many Western magicians. That kind of sounds like a bagua grid to me in feng shui. Oh, fascinating. You say more about that? Yeah. Feng shui is a more Eastern way of, more colloquially, people say that it's for decoration, but really it's about enhancing qi, which is energy in a space. And any room can be broken up into a three by three, nine square grid. And each of the nine sections is supposed to attract certain elements based on what's there. So there are colors, there are objects, there are elements. Yes. Yeah. So like, for example, there's like 11 relationship corner in the upper right. There's like a travel one. There's a family one. There's um, money and success, for example. Yeah, it's just it's very fascinating to me. And there actually is a psychology behind it uh, that one of my professors in college was really looking for and I you know feng shui things you know like you're supposed to put a plant in one corner to mm-hmm. attract money and knowledge and it's just really really fascinating so that's what I it's just so funny too because this is you know uh, Kabbalah is a Jewish mysticism and feng shui as coming from the east so mm-hmm. like you were saying there is overlap across cultures. I think so yeah and I again I don't know if that's a metaphysical thing or just that human beings only have so many ways of imagining the universe that it all seems to you know come together in some way so with those who don't practice magic are there any occult like jewish occult based rituals traditions or amulets that people might unknowingly do and use today i know um something about a mezuzah um, you could argue them as, as and to fill that, in yeah, our definitely. magical implements. Yeah, I mean it depends on on how if you there is an argument to be made that magic predates religion, and so all we're really doing is codifying these ancient magical practices, ritualizing them in a different way, stripping them of what we would consider these occultic feels about them because there's no more spirits inhabiting them. There's only the, the one God. Right. But, I mean, even look at something like um, the Eucharist. If that's not a magical, it's very easy to them. I mean, I would, wouldn't go to say that they're practicing magic, 
but I could imagine somebody could envision that as what they're doing and it's not so far removed from that ritualized practice. And so I think that that's definitely part of it. But there's other things. There's that hand. Oh, the khamsa. Yes, that's definitely yeah. something that has an amulet yeah. type thing. I think some would argue that even wearing a Star of David mm-hmm. um, and uh, it, it, wearing a chai, yeah. any any symbolic gesture in that way becomes can be for the person an amulet of a type, right? So I think intent is very important here because I don't think necessarily anything is magic by default. <laughs> I think when we imagine it is, it becomes that. And I think that that's very real. I also think that, you know, I mean, I grew up, my mother, as I describe my parents as rational, modern Jews, my mother was devoutly superstitious. Mm-hmm. And I still have those today that I have to do, and I, they're just instinct that I can't stop myself from doing. So throwing salt. Yeah. If, yeah. Um, if there was one that my mother used to drive my mother crazy, if one of us had our feet up on a on say the coffee table on the couch, and the and one of the other kids walked over their feet, it's they had to go back over and go around that was a that used to completely wow, drive next crazy. Level that was next level superstition what, exactly what does that symbolize it's just everything so everything is a uh is preventative it, right they're it's all preventative, preventative. kind of what's yeah. the expression kanahara is the yeah yes yeah. so against it's like against the evil eye, eye. Yeah. everything ah. is protective or like, <laughs> like stop something from right. bad from ha- happening right like when somebody yeah. says um We'll say something bad. I will say, you know, lahavdil, which is like a separation yes. between that and yes. reality. Oh, that's an important one my mother had. Yeah. If, if, let's say, my friend Joe broke his arm, yeah. I can't touch my arm where right. Joe broke his arm. I can't say, Joe broke his arm right here. Don't touch your arm where <laughs> Joe broke his arm. You'll, that's, it's contagious. That's contagious, <laughs> right? So... <laughs> Um, so they all make perfect yeah. sense. They do. Although the one I could never get is when you drop a knife or fork, it means somebody's coming over. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> well, there's also you know in that book, the Jewish Magic and Superstition book, there's one that I love. I'm a dog person, and it's whenever you hear a dog barking, it means the angel of death is near, which must mean that in my apartment, the angel of death is always there because my dog will just <laughs> always bark. Um, but there's a there's like a, a supernatural or you know um, protective idea about so many 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 things yes some of them actually have a strangely ethical Mm -hmm. uh uh, thing around them there's this idea that if you are driving down the street and you see smoke coming from a home you should not say i hope that's not my house because what you're actually saying is i hope it's somebody else's right ah which is what you're saying because <laughs> exactly. the smoke is present. So don't say anything. Okay, yeah. just ignore it. All right. Um, so, you know, we, we actually we were just talking about some things that we've discovered in our research when we're, we're t- thinking about this podcast. So, And you've obviously been researching a lot beyond what we have. Um, I wanted to talk about some of the most hilarious, weird, or outlandish uh, bits of magical trivia that we've all uncovered. For me... Um, it was the discovery that magical spells kind of can play a, a role in Israeli politics. Um, there's a curse called the Pulsa de Nura. It's a death curse that different Gosh. political figures have attempted to use against each other. Are you familiar with this one? I am not okay. familiar with this. So like in 2013, one was directed against uh, politician Naftali Bennett. 
um, by fringe elements of the ultra-Orthodox community. Previous recipients have included um, Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon six months before he had a stroke, and Yitzhak Rabin, who was obviously assassinated. But Bennett's still with us, so I'm going to say it was circumstantial. Um, but apparently there's a saying that you haven't made it in Israeli politics until you've been cursed by the Pulse of Denura. So that was <laughs> the one amazing. that I, I loved. So um, I'm interested to know if you, Peter... Well, I just want to get back to the point of, though, if magic is prohibited, the, you would th- that there must be an argument made for that idea that when you do it, you are doing it in service of the divine. Yeah, well, for this death curse? Yes. Yeah, the idea is that the only way to wish for the death of another Jew in a way that's legitimate, because the idea is if they don't die, they're going to cause others to die. So yes. the logic is, really, we're saving lives. Ah, to yes. save a life. The yes. greatest mitzvah that, well, is to give right. a death curse <laughs> right. to save a the life. The greatest mitzvah is to save a life. That's the most important thing in Judaism. Um, like everything else, you can throw out the window in order to do that. Yes. And in this case, they're making the argument that it's legitimate because they feel that if these leaders were to continue on their agendas or whatever, um, uh, Jews would be in danger. So they have to do it. Okay. It's for the greater good. Exactly. Yeah. To pull in another Harry right. Potter exactly. exactly. Yeah. I think one of the strangest things I found is that there is a uh, early Kabbalistic text that actually the the last few pages give God's physical measurements in oh, yeah. cubits. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> and so there, it's like you know, twenty thousand cubits for his toes and for his fingers. Very very strange that this was thought that it could be conceptualized right. in that way. But you also wonder if. It's sort of a a wink-wink on the part of the writer, like, obviously this is ridiculous. You cannot measure God. It's like satire making fun of itself. (laughs) That's amazing. Yeah. Um, Dan, how about you? So mine is probably a little more serious. I'm sorry to take us down this road. But um, for me, I was surprised how, uh, how important these Ashkenazi and I guess Eastern European superstitions they become much more important around family and life events. And my wife, who isn't Jewish, was absolutely obsessed with I what I believe are Ashkenazi superstitions around babies and pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had had some pregnancy losses, and as, as we were trying to have our first daughter, uh, as the pregnancy advanced, so did the superstitions around pregnancy. So there's this concern about the evil eye. If you mention a child before it's born, or if you start to think about a name or if you set up a nursery or if you have a baby shower all of these things will somehow make the evil spirit the evil eye and the pregnancy and this is something that has persisted i you know i i know so many friends who have said no we don't we haven't thought about names you know anything like that it it is something that has persisted for hundreds if not thousands of years in the jewish faith um so of course we didn't have a baby shower we didn't really have much time to set up a baby's room and we didn't land on a name until uh a few days after the baby was born. And with the second child, as is often the case with parents, we just kind of chilled out and didn't worry about it as much. Yes, that's amazing. Well, for me, kind of along the same lines of babies and pregnancy, of course, and I'm sorry to bring this in, Miriam, because I know you think Lilith is overdone. but She's done. uh, For me, in in learning about Lilith, you know, um, they say that she is a demoness who would go after pregnant women and 
babies. And something that I found to be very fascinating is typically, you know, when you think people are cute or whatever, like infants, you tap them on the nose, Mm -hmm. you just boop them on the nose. And apparently this comes from a superstition where if a baby is giggling in their sleep, it means that Lilith is near. So you tap them on the nose to get Lilith away from them. It's like it's an off switch for Lilith. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I gotta go away. I gotta leave now. Yeah, just can't take the the hit the nose. Done. (laughs) Yeah. I am reminded of one other very strange belief, and I don't know where if this is Ashkenazi or Sephardic, but the idea is that when you cut your fingernails or toenails, you have to dispose of them by burning them or burying them. What? Because if you don't, when you die. Before you go on to the next realm, you have to go back and collect all of That's them. That's right. To the bring... I- yeah, the idea that you have to all Ashley your and I are staring at each other <laughs> agape. What? <laughs> like... You have to be buried in with all oh, your uh, stuff. Stuff. Yeah. Um, are, in order, your fingernails when cast outs. I mean, they're not your stuff anymore. I mean, I didn't make they're this up. That, but yeah, well, but you have to account. You for have it. to know where, where all your bits and pieces are. Um, oh yeah, God. so that when you are resurrected what in I the world to come, come, exactly, you won't be missing anything. <laughs> Wait, but cremation isn't. Isn't cremation against Jewish traditions? Yeah, so yeah like that's burning. a big no. Yeah, so I don't yeah, know. So I think maybe you're supposed to keep them or bury them. I'm pretty sure you're supposed to bury them, but don't quote us on this. Yes, and oh. don't try it at home. Right, don't try it at home. <laughs> um, yeah. That's just, that's so interesting. I did not, like, it makes sense when you stop to think about it, but... I'm just sorry. My There's mind is kind of like, like sugar nail now. things. Religion and logic are often yeah. in conflict. And yes. so superstition and logic, even yeah. more so, I would think. Yes. Absolutely. But I do want to go back to this idea of, like, these ideas of demons for a second, mm-hmm. right? So when I think of demons, I think of the concept of hell and the devil and horns, things, and tails and stuff. But what are devils in Judaism? Yeah, I think that's a good question. I So... There isn't real—I mean, hell is is a concept probably that many Jews have sort of adopted just as sort of a popular religious notion. But there really isn't a hell or a fallen angels, right, in in the Jewish cosmology. There is the Satan of a kind that's some well, adversarial— the, the, the Yetzirah. The Yetzirah, yeah. which is the evil impulse, yeah. right? Yeah. Which goes back to the Kabbalah— Tree. Yes, that's right. Because you also have the what are it's very it gets very complicated theologically. But there's these the opposite of our of the tree of the klipoth, which are these negative yeah. influences. It's very 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 strange and but also richly beautiful in yeah. how deeply thought out a lot of this cosmology is. But I do think when you're dealing with demons in Judaism that you're not dealing with with hell as it were you're just dealing with these infernal or divine entities that have a more negative impact as opposed to an angel but even angels can be absolutely terrifying yeah, in Judaism. Adam and Eve. That's right. We don't have the uh, if you the the cherubs of Christian art of the little of the little chubby babies with angel wings 
is not the cherubim no. of the garden that is guarding Eden with a flaming sword. Right. Right. It's kind of different visual right. there. And even the seraphim that are that Ezekiel sees in his vision are these kind of too terrible to behold. These right. sort of they they're these on flaming. There's this the myth is is that the the seraphim all they do is say kadosh 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 holy 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 and then they immediately incinerate and then they are again re- a new yeah. one takes its place kadosh 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 phoenix like like phoenix like over yeah. and over and over again for eternity just saying holy 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 right to the to the throne to the chariot of of god and then you have the ophanim which are the wheels with many eyes which roll around heaven and carry oh, yeah, God's terrifying. chariot. They're terrifying. Yeah. So this idea that the demon and the the angel are separate isn't really... You, you have the demon kings, as it were, in Judaism, and you have the angelic kings, but um, they're, they're all of a divine right. purpose. Jesus, all in so, that last scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yes. Oh, my it God. It always comes right. back so to the, that movie. No, the <laughs> snakes come back to that movie. Oh, my God. Yes. That nothing, that there's no um, alternative evil entity that is on par with God who's directing no, absolutely demons not. to create havoc or no, be. absolutely right, not. Right, that is not a Jewish idea. No. Um, Doesn't mean you should right. be messing with them. Right. They're right. powerful, but every everything acts on the will of God. Yes, except that you could argue that because in in the Kabbalistic in in, in some Kabbalistic Lurianic schools mm-hmm. of thought, where the there is a a separate in creation, there is sort of an exile of the divine mm-hmm. that these things might have more input as it were we might be more tempted by these right. negative impulses than by right. the more divine ones but again they're not um they're not on par i think like yeah. you said is, is yeah. an important idea yeah but they can be in in jewish magic they can be commanded controlled banished talked to conjured there's a whole range of experiences that one can have with these and, and they go back Really, this all goes back, and it's probably we should have started talking about this at the beginning because it could take us down a <laughs> road that we probably don't have time to go on. But the myth behind the building of Solomon's temple is a magic ring that he used to conjure demons yeah. to build the temple. Yeah, and also that nothing could be cut, so they had to use a magic worm. That's right. The magic worm cuts through cut the, stones. the stones. That's right. Fun facts. Yep. <laughs> but I mean, it's fascinating if you think about that the key Jewish symbol, architectural symbol, is thought to have been built by magic. Right. I mean, I just find that to be yeah. absolutely wonderful, too, because, yeah. again, we have this idea that that Judaism is only about this very formal notion of law and that these superstitions and mythologies don't really play into the practice, but our very history of 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 the of the folklore and mythological thinking is replete with magic. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to go into it now because it would take forever. But like, just think about Yom Kippur and the well, Kapparot, 
and then the sacrifice to Azazel. Like, if it, you know, you investigate these things, it's um, it's not exactly aligned with what we think of now as being legit Judaism. That's very logical and law bound. Right, like swinging right. a chicken over yeah. your head. Yeah, yeah. Ka- Kappa wrote okay. is the. Uh, There's a wonderful, wonderful, dirty a, joke that I won't repeat here about <laughs> swinging a chicken. As soon as we turn the mics off, I'd love to hear. Uh, it. I will. Yeah, so Kappa wrote is um, on Yom Kippur. Um, many communities do not do this anymore, but you swing a chicken around your head to basically you give them your sins, give that chicken your sins, so you don't have to do it. And even when you do tashlich, um, the. Uh, Symbolic casting exactly. away of your sins before, um, well, during the the high holidays period in Judaism, um, that's also a symbolic thing where you're getting rid of it in water, that's essentially. Right. And then um, in the Torah, there's the the sacrifice of you know you 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 are supposed to in the times of the temple um, do a sacrificial goat to God, and then there's another one that goes to something or someone else. Azazel or Azazel, um, and now it's interpreted as being just a, a place in the wilderness that's symbolic. But what if you look into it and you think about it, it's it's a being. Oh, that's wonderful. Or, or yes. you know, if you look back at it, but yeah. it's now thought of as being symbolic. So, well, look, the whole Passover story is about the magician Moses. That's right. You know, outperforming the magicians of that's right. right. Outperforming the magicians of the that's right of the of the, of the pharaoh. Yeah. So, so very quickly, just because we, we touched on the practical nature of, um, of Jewish thought sometimes, um, what are some of the practical solutions for dealing with supernatural problems that, that you've read about, um, like how to get a demon out of your living room? Um, just like for me, when I was looking into it, I thought some of the, the funniest ones were um, just change your name and the demon's going to leave you alone because apparently they're not super bright. Oh, Drill a hole in your front door so a demon won't just like hit the front door and get upset about it he'll be able to pass in and out of your living room oh, yes. um and, you know even the, there's um rashi the scholar rashi has practical advice for this have you encountered things that are well i think when somebody practical. dies you're supposed to open the window so that's that right. the spirit get out. can get out yeah right that's an important one yeah yeah did your mother do that one no but we she did die at home and that we did not open the window oh Yep, I know. Well, I hope. I know. No one okay. Yes, I know exactly. <laughs> and she would love this conversation, by the way. Um, anybody else read any just completely random and yet very well thought out um, ways to deal with uh, supernatural crises? Well, like I said, the Lilith tapping the baby right, on the that's nose. A good, right one. Really good yeah. One. yeah, yeah. I think The Exorcist has been really key in people's understanding of how to deal with demonic problems <laughs> yes mm-hmm. you know well, pretty much once you get past the first movie they're not as helpful but the first one is quite helpful it takes you through the entire process I, I which just, was not the Jewish know, process but more yeah. or less successful mm-hmm. <laughs> I just think like anytime you hear that movie I think of the pea soup that movie ruined my childhood oh everyone <laughs> as somebody childhood. who loved horror movies that yeah. one was and I have still been too afraid to see it Oh, you should be. You absolutely should be. It is the most terrifying movie, and I don't care that it was made in 1974 or whatever, and special effects weren't that great. The absence of special effects made it even scarier. Mm. (laughs) It was just terrifying. A priest talking to a child wearing a lot of makeup was the most terrifying thing I've seen (laughs) in my life. Uh, Well, Peter, I just want to say thank you so much for coming and having this amazing conversation with us, sharing your knowledge. Um, Yeah, thank you so much. 
um, listeners to make sure you don't miss an episode of Jewish Boston's The Vibe of the Tribe podcast. Make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and follow at Jewish Boston on social media. And also remember to check under your bed for Lilith.